Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to exceptional people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a politician who served as a minister under Boris Johnson, David Cameron and Theresa May. Esther McVeigh was Work and Pension Secretary and a Housing Minister. She resigned from the Cabinet over Brexit and is a staunch Eurosceptic as well as an admirer of Margaret Thatcher, but she's not a typical traditional Tory. She was a Bernardo's child who was fostered as a baby in Liverpool for the first few years of her life. One of her grandfathers was a railway worker, the other a docker. And she was a children's television presenter and host of the breakfast show GMTV before becoming an MP. I've been in the cabinet, but I do understand that it takes hard work to get there, she says. I had to make my own networks. Esther McVeigh, thank you very much for joining us. Do you feel different from your colleagues on the Conservative benches in the Commons, surrounded by public school boys? I, I don't really take that much into consideration. I know we're all different in a way, and I guess we all come from different walks of life, but I don't really compare myself that way with others. I Maybe maybe I'm thrilled I'm, I'm there, but I don't try and judge myself too much like that. Does it feel ridiculous to you that when they talk about the wall games or beaks or playing fields at Eton and all those kind of public schoolboy jokes that sometimes go on in the Commons? I don't think they go on as much as people <laughs> might uh, might think. I can't really think I've ever heard anybody um, talk about that. Now, if I think about the Commons itself and I can reflect and look back upon it, I could, I can absolutely say, if you've been to a, a boarding school or an elite school, I can see how you'd fit in there well with the wood panelled walls and used to the debating and used to the formality. So I could see how you could seamlessly fit into there. But I never went there seeing and feeling that. I can just reflect on it more now. And do you think you, that they actually understand the difficulties for working class voters? I think there's a lot of people who talk about it and uh, they have an opinion on it and it's sort of vicariously living somebody's life but not really having walked in somebody's shoes. So yes, I think there is a lot of talking about rather than real self-reflection or self-knowing. And you yourself really do understand how tough life, life can be. And we want to take you back to your own childhood growing up in Liverpool. And you were taken into care as a baby. Can you just explain to us what happened? I, I guess, as I've had it explained to me, it was a bit of a perfect storm, really. Uh, Mum had got um, pregnant with me very young. 
um, neither my mum or dad had had any money. They weren't married. I guess they weren't ready for parenthood and adult life, as it were. And at the same time, my grandma was dying with cancer. And there was a, like, nobody could have taken uh, me looked after me uh, but my mom and dad knew they wanted to keep me so I guess they thought gosh who could maybe look after our little child for a little period of time because in the long term we want to get her back so I know uh, that they always wanted me back but they just knew they couldn't look after me at that period of time and there was nobody else in the family who could look after me. So um, mom did her research and obviously dad would have supported her because um, where would I go? And at the time, Bernardo's would take children in to foster them with a view that when your parents were back uh, in a, a state uh, of being able to look after the child, they could take them back. And so that was the journey my parents went on and they went via a charity. I think they would have had concerns about um, the state getting involved, social services getting involved. They knew they wanted me back and I think they felt more questions maybe would have been asked that way. Maybe people would have drawn the wrong conclusions that way. So they thought going the charity route for them uh, secured getting me back. And it happened when you were so young. Do you think you had any sense of abandonment or do you think you were happy in the foster home? Now, I can only reflect on this because I wouldn't have known about abandonment or anything like that at a young age. And I've never really felt that, whether it was because I came back to my parents and I would have known love from a young age. I never had abandonment. But what I will tell you, uh, later on in life, much later, somebody, I remember saying to me, gosh, Esther, uh, you've got real heightened awareness. Um, and I didn't know what they were talking about. And I said, oh, what, what, what do you mean? They said, oh, well, uh, you can sort of sense the moods. You can know what's going on. You know, it'll make you a good negotiator. You really manage to take the temperature of things. And so they then asked me the question, what happened to you between the ages of naught to three? We only genuinely get uh, this sense of hyper-awareness from people who've been removed from their families at a young age. And I saw that's interesting. What, why? Because nobody knew this at the time. So she really had to have hit on uh, something that she'd sensed. And she said, oh, well, when you're a baby between those years, naught to three, um, you couldn't protect yourself. You couldn't uh, I don't know, walk away, couldn't speak up for yourself, you couldn't do anything that could get you out of harm's way. You're basically lying in this very vulnerable state. So you build super awareness, and she called it hyper-awareness. So you're aware of moods, you're aware of voices, you're aware of feelings, you're aware of emotions, and you develop this heightened awareness. But that's fascinating. So almost more emotionally intelligent than a child who hasn't been given away at that age? Well, I guess it's about protection, isn't it? Um, so you will just be super attuned to what could be a threat, what could be warmth, what could be love. And maybe you protect yourself by being quiet, you wouldn't cry, maybe knowing when to giggle. I don't know. Mm. But it did make sense. And she asked that question of me, and this was well before people knew I, I'd been a Bernardo's child because I'd really always kept it to, to my 
myself, not for any other reason, because they're just that I think it's my parents' story rather than mine. So I thought she must have been onto something. She must have seen something because this was an area of psychology that she'd studied. What's your earliest memory? Can you actually remember being in the foster homes or was it when you went back to your parents? My earliest, clearest memory is definitely coming back home to my parents' house. It was my grandparents' house, actually. Um, I have what I'd call broken dreams prior to that. So I will, again, remember a sense or a feeling. So I can remember holding onto somebody's arms and walking down a sunny road. So I'll see the greens and the golds flickering through trees and I will have a sense of fun. So I remember things like that. But for a full, clear, vivid memory, it is from the age of four upwards. And what is that first memory? I I remember going home. And again, I think it is about sounds and feelings and sense and enjoyment. But I remember going home and the first thing that struck me was the quietness. So I can only imagine I was in a house with lots of hustle and bustle and other children and noise and fun. And so I I went home and it seemed like a perfectly pleasant place. But a couple of hours later, I must have said, yep, I'm ready to go now. (laughs) I'm ready to go back to the noise and the people. It's been a great afternoon, but I'm off uh, now because, you know, I guess it was it was it was, as I said, it was just quiet and different. And then. I decided that I was off and I was going to pack my little suitcase. I had a little tiny blue suitcase which contained a doll. So I packed that up and I said, well, I'm off. And I remember it must have taken, I think my mom was crestfallen. And I think my dad was um, amused, actually. I think that's the word. He was amused. And he said, oh, okay, if you're off, where are you going? And I must have said, home. And where's the bus stop? So I've always been self-sufficient, self-reliant. So he pointed, the bus stop was over there. So off I went and I was ready. And he did obviously follow me, this sort of four and a half year old tootling back. Uh, So he did follow me all the way and uh, waited with me at the bus stop. It was a Sunday afternoon. um, And obviously there was no buses coming for a while. And I just remember him saying, look, there isn't any buses for a while. So why don't you come back home with me? I'll take your suitcase, follow me back home. And if you want, you can leave tomorrow. It's an extraordinary image of this little blonde child just wandering down the street with a tiny little suitcase. And it must have been terrifying for your parents, but they sound as if they were incredibly gentle and kind with you. And is that what you really remember from your younger years? It's just the extraordinary warmth from your parents, because it's very difficult to give a child away and then be able to accept them back so easily and readily. I think what Bernardo's did, and I think it was an amazing scheme, they would have got to have seen me maybe on a weekly, fortnightly, monthly basis. So you would keep a contact with your child with a view to coming back. So it wouldn't have been so alarming, these two new people. I would have had some continuation of knowledge with them. And I think the families, because it would have been two, because it was quite a long period of time, they must have been, I think, incredible loving and kind and they obviously wanted to look after a kid so I believe in kindness and because people have been kind to me and I think human beings naturally want to support other people yes things can go wrong but I think human beings naturally do the right thing and would be there for a a child a baby an infant so I I think I I think and I hope uh, I've always been 
surrounded by love. Doesn't mean you don't have bad times, but I think I've always been surrounded by love. But also, what must have been strange, you were an only child with your parents, weren't you? Was it odd to go back to uh, being an only child there, not having any siblings, having been with these very busy foster families? I think so. I think I've always missed that. I've always said, oh, I would have liked other siblings and I think that added to my not not only am I independent and self-sufficient I then think being an only child as well you get used to your own space but if I had have had a choice I would have liked uh, brothers and sisters and obviously I remember saying to my mum I so want an older brother I mean completely impossible but I think that would be the thing I would have always have liked elder uh, siblings I don't know if I wanted younger ones <laughs> but I definitely wanted older ones. And with the perspective of time do you think you had any sense of anger or resentment at all with your parents that they'd given you away for that period of time? No I don't think so I've thought about that um no, I think, um, and maybe you cling hold to things that you want to believe. And I've always thought, wow, they really must have loved me because they fought to get me back. And I think sometimes now as an adult, probably far more of their pain, giving something so precious up and working their way to getting me back. So dad set up a business because you know, they would have left school at like 14, 15. They didn't really have any, I say they didn't have really any, they didn't have any qualifications as such, but they had an ability and they had a work ethic and they knew what they wanted out of life, which was a nice family, uh, success in one way or another, a nice house, a nice car. So their way of doing it was then to set up their own business. What could they do? Could they trade and make money from? Because they weren't going to have a a CV that they would hand over to some employer who'd who'd take them on and give them some sort of shining role. So they created their future themselves. And that's why I guess I believe so much in opportunities, chance, setting up your own business, knowing what opportunities are out there, networks, work experience, all of these things just to enable people to find their own route to, you know, to make money at the end of the day, which allows you to have a a family and nice things in life. Do you think being separated from your parents very young also increased that sense of self-reliance? You talked about becoming more aware and vigilant, if you like. Do you think it also made you more uh, self-reliant and self-sufficient? Yes, I think I'm both of those. I think I'm practical and I will just get on with things. If something needs to be done, the first person I'll probably turn to is myself to see how it can be done. I think I'm resilient because I guess you've needed to be. And I'm not frightened of trying things out and I guess, which sounds like a weird thing to say, um, I guess I must be good at handling rejection. So if it doesn't go right, I kind of can pick myself up and go, oh, well, it didn't happen this time. Give it another go because I'm sure it will be fine in the end. So I think that cycle of coming back to my parents have given me a soft landing, which allows me to say, give it a go. I'm sure it will be fine in the end. And if it's not this way, it's that way. So I think that's... Um, self-motivation, self-starter, resilience, all of those sort of build into one to me. And you seemed incredibly brave and grown up as a little child. Did you feel more adult than the other children and different from them when you were at school? 
<laughs> no, I think uh, I was certainly just as naughty as them uh, <laughs> and just as adventurous as them. I think I was a, as much as a, a tomboy uh, as them and I was on as many detentions as other people. So so maybe I'm free-spirited and, and maybe I was a slightly uh, gung-ho, um, but I, I never thought that. I thought, I thought we were all quite independent-minded. I think little people are really I think we sort of go off charge around and probably think of the 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 pain and the upset afterwards once we've fallen over and had a disaster I I think a lot of us um start off quite outward going and maybe it's the things in life that happen to us that maybe close down our adventure did you ever try to find the foster families you'd stayed with no I didn't actually um Rachel and I would love to know who they were but I didn't because I think my mum and dad wanted to move on from that time Mm. they didn't necessarily want to look back and reflect on that I think that was a painful experience and I'm, I'm, I'm very loyal in that regard and I wouldn't have done anything that would have upset them but as an adult I'd be absolutely curious to know who they were but mainly to thank them because I think they gave me a really good start in life and they made sure I was still trusting and caring. For me, I think that they did a a really, really good job. And there wasn't much money when you were little. How tough did things get? Did you have a sense that life was a struggle for your parents when they were starting out? Self-analysis and self-reflection isn't something I think you do in a poorer working class household. I think you're really surviving and getting on and looking forward to what you need to do. So there's, you're always busy. Have I got this? Am I doing that? Have I earned enough? What are we doing tomorrow? You know, I can't buy this in and we can't afford that. So how do we make do and mend? What are we cooking? Are we cleaning? You won't be going to pay for entertainment. So how do we make it ourselves? Do we go for a walk in the park? Do we make something? So I just always felt there was busy lots of stuff going on my time was always filled with things and it sounds very different to some of your colleagues so Jacob Rees-Mogg had nanny even to do his laundry when he was at university but I imagine you were helping with the chores even throughout your childhood and and later you know absolutely there were things to be done and they would all be shared out. So yes I would be peeling the potatoes in the plastic tub. And yes, my job was to polish the shoes so they looked neat for the next day. So there were just things to do. And and I think that just gives you a greater understanding in in life. I mean, when people talk about being environmentalists and caring about the environment and, and, you know, repairing things, I was always brought up that way. You don't throw things away. You make sure they are used not once, not twice, but however many times, how to invert a collar on a shirt and restitch it how to redo the cuffs, how to do the buttons, how to darn, how to sew, how to mend your socks, how to reheal your shoes and, you know, and, and uh, resell them. I mean, so this was part of my life, but I learned a lot from there. So, you know, some people like my other half will say how thrifty I am. I am naturally 
thrifty value for money why would you throw something away why wouldn't you use it twice how do you make something out of something else mm. and that's to do with whether that's food whether that's clothes uh, and, and I know you always mention my hair uh, <laughs> and I, I can both it's always immaculate yeah yeah because I wouldn't spend 20 30 quid every time you need to have it done I will buy the right hair dryer I will buy the right uh, curling brush and I will do it myself a I can do it at any time that I want to and b I don't have to pay for it you see what I mean so mm. that sort of resilience self-reliance and, and, and value for money is absolutely drilled into me and how do you think returning home affected your parents and do you think they became very ambitious for you I think they were ambitious for themselves having lost something and if I'm being honest they were probably embarrassed about that you know I'm not saying shame is the word but they would have felt embarrassed that they hadn't the wherewithal to look after the child they'd created so they became ambitious for themselves and then drilled into me you know Esther make sure that you've got options in life Esther, you know, make sure there are opportunities, there are different paths to go down. Don't suffer the pain of not being able to do what you want to do. So that ambition you talk about and, you know, you know, that they had for themselves. And I watched sort of social mobility before my very eyes them not having to them, you know, getting the first car, getting the first house, going on their holiday for the very first time and sort of progressing up in life. And that's why I totally believe in social mobility and it's possible and it doesn't matter what you've had thrown at you, you can turn your life around if somebody gives you that opportunity, a second chance, you know, education, training, support, where, you know, wherever that comes from. So, so I absolutely do believe in, in social mobility and people getting a hold of their life and, and going forward if given the support they need. And your father set up his own business. What do you think you learned from him and from that experience? Giving things a go. You know, it took him quite a while to get a business that um, <laughs> worked. Uh, anyway, I mean, he tried lots of different things. You know, if he needed to make money, he'd say he'd turn his hand to anything. He, he wasn't proud uh, in that regard. So he did have uh, an ice cream van to see if that worked to get extra money of a weekend. You know, not so great in, in the UK when the weather's not so uh, <laughs> wonderful and not everybody's running outside for ice creams as I look out now at the uh, at the rain and, you know, all the snow and everything we've had so, but, but you know he turned his hand at everything and then you know a car mechanic and then driving a taxi and then uh he went into scrap metal merchant and then he moved into demolition excavation land reclamation and although he might not have moved from a new business to the other this was the same business but it adapted and grew to you know where he realized maybe the money was maybe the where the profit margin was where the opportunity was where the field wasn't too crammed with competitors so i guess i've learned to adjust and adapt just like that you know it is really you know survival 
I can't think of anything I'd have liked more, I think, than having an ice cream van as a child. <laughs> this would have been my dream job for my parents. Was, I mean, was your mother involved? Was she manning the yeah, ice yeah. cream van or I womaning mean, it? To be fair, she's got, a, you know, a great sense of humour. And I think she'd watch on. She's much quieter. She's much shyer. But I think she's an encourager. So it would always be, oh, my goodness, what's next? So, you know, you try this ice cream van. And you know what? He'd say, at the end of the day, we've had a laugh. We might, you know, we tried it earn some money this weekend it wasn't for us it wasn't what we thought but you know good fun but I'd return home from you know school or what have you and we had a Wurlitzer in the front room you know something that he could mend repair and sell on but we'd keep it for a little while or a motorbike on the front path which he'd have a go at repairing and selling on there was always that element of something new happening. So did you have a sense of wanting to escape from your background or was it almost building on that um, your father's efforts to try lots of different things? I don't know if I wanted to escape, but I definitely have an adventurous spirit. So if you was to say to me, what would be, you know, what be an ideal thing for you? I could quite happily get on a train by myself with a little suitcase rucksack or whatever and travel from country to country, continent to continent, seeing different things, meeting different people, I love observing, whether Mm. that's people, different sort of countryside, cities. So, you know, I do love that feeling of movement, adventure, free spirit. So I don't know if that's escaping, but it's certainly sampling life. You're listening to Past and Perfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, the Conservative politician Esther McVeigh. There'll be more from us after this. To enjoy more incredible stories from incredible people, why not get a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times today with one month for free? Head online and search thetimes.co.uk forward slash past imperfect. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, the Conservative MP Esther McBay. very aware of the city's cultural heritage and proud of that sense of being a Liverpudlian? Well, Liverpool is an amazing place. 
it looks beautiful, whether that's the, the water, whether that's the cathedrals, whether that's the parks. It really is a beautiful place. And it's got fabulous history that goes with that. So you do feel you're part of an exciting city. I always thought a courageous city, actually. I've always thought it's a bit of a maverick, genius city. It's sort of with lots of emotion in there. There seemed like there was a debate on every street corner. There was always, you know, an issue or an incident. And the backdrop as well was lots of fabulous music, whether it was Pete Burns, whether it was Echo and the Bunnymen, Flock of Seagulls. I mean, fantastic new music. And then there was lots of, I remember lots of plays, you know, Willie Russell on the Empire Theatre, the Playhouse Theatre, the Everyman Theatre. So it was just a just nonstop activity and lots of theatre. So I've always just thought of it as a, a really wonderful place to grow up with lots of things to try and just always something exciting going on. What were you like as a teenager? Were you very rebellious or did you have a picture of Margaret Thatcher as a role model? No, I I didn't. And I look at Margaret Thatcher now that I've learned more about her and I've read about her life and I thought, wow, she took on the establishment and look what she achieved. How difficult was her life? How much she must have tried to get there to be the first female prime minister. So I've read a lot about her in that regard. And you do have to say hats off to her for what she did, what she achieved against all the odds. But growing up in Liverpool, she wouldn't have been a role model or somebody (laughs) you held up, except for, you know, it was impressive that she was there as a leader. And I remember The Tory cabinet at that time were described as big beasts and they were. So whether it was your Norman sort of Tebbit or whether it was uh, Lawson or whether it was Hesseltine, just exciting characters with something to say. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, it makes sense. What you've just said there to me leapt out of the TV and it made sense you know, about giving things a go, about you can't have what you can't afford, about turning the country around, about ambition and success. Um, And all of that just was, I suppose, music to my ears. And I didn't really hear that political opinion in Liverpool. I didn't really sense that optimism and way out and creative thought patterns. I just didn't hear that where I was. And just through the TV screens, these people just spoke to me in a way. And how did you get your first job in TV? (laughs) Uh, I guess this is part of my free spirit in giving things a go and why shouldn't I uh, have a go? And again, my outlook was in the 80s, you know, it was a bad time to get a job and there weren't much jobs around. So I kind of thought, what did it matter if I applied for a job in a bank or carried on? I was studying law at the time, carried on to be, you know, a barrister or I don't know, went into finance. If there were no jobs sort of anywhere, well, why not try a profession that I know is going to be really difficult? Because to me, it seemed like a level playing field. If everywhere was tough, why not have a go on something completely outrageous and different and have a bash it going into TV. So that's what I did. And then my dad was horrified, I have to tell you. He was going to be really proud that I was going to be the first from our family who'd gone to university, the first then to be a professional, as it were, who was going to be a lawyer or a barrister. And there was I, throwing it all away and going into something that seemed so flippant, which was a TV. So he set a time limit. 
there was a year. And if I didn't do it, I was to go back to, uh, you know, law school and go to be a barrister. And I think that time and that limit is very good at focusing the mind. So I said, OK, I've got a year. I will give it a go. And even though he said that and even though he was quite harsh and even though he gave us just the year to do it, when I said I'm going to apply for this job, I'd seen it um I thought a children's TV and I had to make a demo tape. They had to see me t- talking to camera for 30 seconds. He was my cameraman, so he helped me. So mm-hmm. d- despite the fact he didn't want me to do it, despite the fact he gave me a time limit to do it, he was more than happy to help me achieve my goal, as it were. So I went the off-license, the top of the road. They uh, hired out camcorders at the time, which was 15 quid. Most people were hiring the camcorder to get married. I was doing this show reel. So I got the 15 quid, again, off my dad, hired the camcorder, made him my cameraman and just did a little video, my Liverpool. <laughs> so there you go. And, and I sent it off uh, and I got called in for uh, a, an interview. And I guess, I think that sums up everything that my parents gave to me. Look, this was an idea I wanted to try. Why don't you give it a go and then break it down into its component parts? I didn't know what I needed to do. So I called up the TV company and said, what is it you want? They said to me, we want a demo tape. And I even said, I don't know what you mean. What do you mean? They said, you on a VHS. And I thought, ah, oh, I know who hires out VHSs. I know what they mean. I can get the money, my dad can be the cameraman, I'll slice it together and send it off. So I break problems down into their component parts to a size that I can manage and just plough on. So you got your dream job, so why did you then want to go and be an MP? Well, I didn't know that that was necessarily my dream job. It was just something that I thought, well, why not give it a go? I was working as a waitress in Covent Garden at a place called Tuttons whilst I was studying to be, you know, studying law at uh, London University. I did that because, again, my parents had said, Esther, we don't mind paying for your books, but one thing we won't pay for is your social life. So if you want to be going out and enjoying yourself, you better get a job and pay for it. Hence, I got a job in Totten's Covent Garden. Then when I was there in Totten's Covent Garden, I mixed with a whole host of people I would never have mixed with in my own you know, life. People were there who were writers and, and theatre uh, producers and TV producers. And as I spoke to them, serving them their meal and getting them their glass of wine, I thought, wow, gosh, that sounds like an interesting job. Why don't I give that a go? So I'm just somebody who always keeps my ears open, my eyes open, listen to opportunity and find sort of ways uh, of doing it. So I'm not saying it was my dream job. It was just something I really wanted to do that sounded exciting. And then I did it. And I was there for, what, 10, 14 years in total, researcher, producer, presenter. And as it came to the end of that 10 sort of 14 years I I say 10 because that's where I probably changed my mind to move on but stayed there for a little bit longer I thought gosh it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day to me so you know it was wonderful and I enjoyed it but I was say I was hosting uh, GMTV you know be three minutes talking about the news three minutes talking about a soap star three minutes talking about a music release and then we do the same thing every day and I just thought I've loved it It's taught me a lot. I've met a lot of amazing people. But you know what? I'd sooner be the person who came up with the solutions to problems and not the person just talking about the issue or the problems. And I thought if you want to solve problems, then you have to go into that space. And for me, that space then seemed to be the world of politics.
So it was a, a, a long journey. And I guess my life is has been a long journey of experimentation because I didn't have the networks who could have made my life quicker and shorter and more accurate and pinpointed on where I wanted to go. So I've lived life and got it right, got it wrong. I've gone on a journey to find out what it was I wanted to do. Nobody could help me in that. So sometimes I think, gosh, that was a long journey to get anywhere. A bit like this answer. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, And having worked for several prime ministers, you're now the leader of the blue collar conservatives who are trying to reach out to working class voters. Do you think that the 2019 election, when Labour's red wall fell to the Tories, changed politics forever? Or do you think it was a temporary blip? This change had been coming for a long time. So I actually set up Blue Collar Conservatism in 2012 with Clark Vasey and Philip Davis. And we set this up because we could see this change was already coming um, and that Labour wasn't connecting with its working class voters and hadn't for a long period of time. So when I'd sit on the green benches and look at the opposite benches, you know, I'd look at half of them and I'd think, from an neck, you wouldn't know a working class voter if you fell over one. Mm-hmm. They just weren't connected. They were talking about their situation, not really feeling their situation. And you could see that as well in the voting patterns. So you could see somewhere like Sedgefield, Tony Blair's seat, which he had with the 25,000 majority, absolutely disappearing away over 20 plus years. And then it was won in 2019 by Paul Howell with the four and a half thousand majority. But that didn't happen overnight. However, in the 2019 election, what you had was uh, various things all coming together at once. You had the Brexit vote, uh, and many of those red wall, I'll call them blue wall seats now, were Brexiteers as well. And that was all about feeling that, you know, things were passing them by. So this levelling up agenda, social mobility agenda, is really key. You also had a leader of the Labour Party who was so not in tune with working class voters. It was very much sort of uh, Islington, North London, Metropolitan, and he didn't have a feel for them at all. And when he wasn't viewed as, I I wouldn't say he was, no, not patriotic, not liking the royal family, you know, sympathies with the IRA, that is so far away from those working class voters as well. So that when the 2019 election came with the Brexit, with a leader of the opposition who had nothing in common with those people and this gradual movement over 20 years, it was the perfect moment to bring all of those people who were naturally conservatives, didn't necessarily know it. That was the moment and that was the 80 seat majority. But I've been knocking on doors for 20 years in some of these areas and a lot of them would say to me, Esther, totally agree with what you're saying. But you know what? If I voted conservative, my dad would turn in his grave. I can't tell you how many years I've heard people say that to me. But 2019 was the moment they could say, do you know what? There is a Labour Party who haven't got an answer on Brexit, haven't got an answer on the biggest issue of the day, isn't patriotic, doesn't think like us. Now is the time that we can put that cross in the Conservative box. Some of your colleagues have criticised a culture of toxic masculinity, even during this pandemic. Do you recognise that? And do you think it's fair? I guess I've always felt that masculine energy in the House. Um, 
And I felt it, you know, against the sort of bullying, intimidation that I've had against me, because I think I was one of the first to go through a really horrendous time on social media with death threats and the like. Why do you think that female politicians get so much vile abuse, particularly in places like Twitter? Women have been really quite frightened at times about the abuse that they've received. Well, I had horrendous uh, abuse in the 2015 general election. And you're right, the words that seem to be directed at women are particularly vile and ugly, um, whether it's um, you know, witches and evil and killers. And it, 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 it just is such an ugly space. And it does seem to be significantly directed towards women. And I guess we've got to think, how do we move on from there. So, you know, yes, people have said for a period of time, oh, you've just got to get thicker skin. Well, I have thick skin and I've got my skin getting thicker, but I don't believe that is the solution. I think it would put off other wonderful people who don't necessarily have the tools to be able to cope with that. So we do have to say, how do we make it that you can't be anonymous on Twitter. If you want to say those things, well, put it next to your name and put it next to your face. And I think they wouldn't necessarily do that. I do think there has to be a standard for, you know, that vitriol, that abuse. I mean, it's all about bullying and intimidation. And it's trying to say, don't you go there. You know, you cannot do. So it is about curtailing the freedoms. It is about curtailing the freedom of, uh, uh, you know, what you're doing uh, and expression. So we have to take that on board. So I look forward to the online harms bill. What are we going to do now? But I think removing this anonymous arena that you can just, you know, say things and not have a name and face attached to it. I think that has to be the start. So do you still feel like an outsider at Westminster or do you now feel like you're part of the establishment there? <laughs> oh, that's a very good question. I um, I don't think I'm necessarily looking to be accepted, as it were. I am looking to raise questions. I'm looking to be the voice of a certain set of people. I'm looking at where I see maybe things could be done better you know, how to challenge things. I don't like hypocrisy. I don't like a them and us. And I guess fundamentally I'm driving for fairness. So do I need to be accepted or not? I don't know. Have I got in there? Am I making a change for good? You know, I hope so. But looking at myself, maybe I've never necessarily needed to be accepted. Do you think that you became a Brexiteer because you wanted to shake things up and because you didn't mind being an outsider? No, uh, I'm a pragmatist, actually, and I would usually be why mend something if it's not broken, you know, so I'm I'm very much a, a pragmatic conservative, I think. It was only really when I became Minister for Employment and I went to the EU and looked at how they negotiated and how they worked on things that made me start to question it when I was a minister going to Europe. And I'll give you an example. So it was coming to a vote 
and all of our civil servants had been working on, you know, a blocking minority for six, maybe nine months. We got it agreed. We knew which countries were with us. And basically, I was going there to finish off the negotiations, do the voting, sit through the meeting and sort of bring it to a head. But obviously, a team of people had been working on it tirelessly for a long period of time. I'd done a meeting at seven o'clock in the morning. All these countries that were with us had agreed it. We were, it was all going to be fine. We were going in we shook hands you know everything was signed we go in and the meeting is pursuing carrying on and all of a sudden out the blue a coffee break was called mid-afternoon and I remember thinking well this is strange and I could see people moving around and people talking and people disappearing out the room and obviously you know you don't need to be a rocket science to think there's something amiss here something isn't right the meeting, the coffee meeting was you know, called to an end and 15 minutes later, everybody sat back at the seats. After which the question was asked, are we going to do this and who isn't and who's on board and we'll take the vote now? And then I looked around the room and my card went up. I voted no, blocking it, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, Poland, that was meant to be with us, didn't put their card up. So obviously we didn't have the blocking minority anymore, but this is the team everybody had met with. And I thought, well, that's strange. So here's me, unheard of. I tapped on the mic and I saw, excuse me, can we start that vote again? I don't think somebody heard what you said because they haven't put the card up. Everybody was shocked. Again, I've just sort of, you know, I'm, I'm honest. I know what I want to do. This to me wasn't right. I thought I better challenge it, which is what I do. And uh, there was, you know, noise around the room. Everybody was shocked. But they said, OK, we'll ask the question again. So I quickly turned up my card and ran the length of the table, which is huge. It's a massive room. I ran right round the room, tapped the Polish representative on the shoulder, I said, gosh, didn't you hear the question? You know what was going, you're voting with us. We spoke about this a few hours ago. You need to turn your card up. We, we've agreed on this. He would not look at me. He would not speak to me. And literally his assistant said, sorry, we had a coffee break. We, we've now done a, a deal with France. We won't be voting with you. <gasps> to which I said, I'll remember that, mate. <laughs> and ran right, right back round the table. And that was the change from a vote that people had worked on for nine months. They'd done a quick deal in the coffee break. So it was not what they believed in. It was nothing to do with what we were doing. It was a side deal on something else. And that changed everything. And then I started to look at what was this organization we were a part of how was the dealings done were we getting what we wanted or were we always getting not quite what everybody agreed on so it was the worst deal for everybody and that was what started me looking into how the eu worked and was it right for the uk and was it as democratic as people thought and what were the outcomes and how could you manipulate the outcomes and what changes were done and that's what put me on the journey. So I was late to the table as a Brexiteer. And do you still worry about money now or do you love being able to spend what you want? Well, we know you like shoe shopping and you're very good at clothes. No, no, I am. I am mindful of money. And I do always think is that value for money. And if I don't need to spend it, I won't spend it. If I can make it do it myself, I will. But that does not mean I don't like luxuries. So I, it's a treat. And if I think that's something I really want and I'm really going to cherish and I'm going to look after it, then I will say, absolutely, it's well worth the price. 
So I'm not a frivolous spender, as it were. I will choose my items and put my money in it. I'll tell you something. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. But look, even dishwasher tablets, I break in half because I don't believe you need to (laughs) hold one in and they're really expensive. (laughs) Do you still think of yourself as working class? You're going to do that. You are so going to do that. When you go home now, you're going to get your dishwasher tablets and you're going to say a £4.50 a packet, right? They can easily go in half. And to be fair, they're they're quite toxic, all of that sort of washing stuff. I was thinking exactly that. (laughs) So cut them in half. (laughs) Do you still think of yourself as working class? Or do you think you've become very middle class now? Well, you know, you're quite right, Rachel. I've moved across in a way. Where does my heart lie? Where do I feel instinctively? What am I very aware of? Absolutely my working class roots and my dad's sort of working class roots and my mum's because I, I grew up as well with my grandparents. So when you've got people who had to every day go to the docks, apply for a job, whether anybody would take them on for work that day, having walked seven miles to work and seven miles home. Well, I grew up with that. That's not my life, but I grew up with that. When I saw my dad have no money and, you know, have to try and think of ways to make money, it is deep within me. So even though now I am, you're quite right, I'm of a different class. I've done well. I've got a really nice house and I'm, I'm, you know, proud of that. And I am a professional and I'm proud of that. But I think I have a good overview of the working class right the way through to the professional class. I'm not quite a lardy dar. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, but as I said, opportunities is what I'm about. And, and I think everything I've done is about helping other people with opportunities. So whether it's a charity I set up, if Chloe can, I like to nurture and support people. I'm actually very good at seeing, you know, people's talents and with a little bit of shine and a little bit of gloss, how could we get you better? How could we help you better? So I think I'm, you know, good at that. Blue collar conservatism is about that. How can we help you? How can we support you? How do I really listen to what would work for you, not a little think tank in Westminster who thinks this would work for you, but actually what would and what do you need now? And I hope I can be a conduit between working class and Westminster. Looking back to yourself at the age of four when you're walking down the garden path with your suitcase, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? I do you know, in a way, I think that four-year-old could teach me And I say that because, you know, she did have strength and she did have courage and she was going on her own journey. And there's something very courageous, I think, in a young child. And I think because you're not worn down by battles you've faced and lost, you're at the start of a journey, you've got the courage to press ahead. And I think I've kept that. I have the courage to press ahead now, even though, you know, I do bear scars of battles I've won and lost. So actually, I think I'd like to hear a little bit more from her on why she felt she had the courage to go back to this noisy, fun place. Esther McVeigh, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, Esther McVeigh. This is a Wireless Studios production produced by Ben Mitchell. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back on the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organizations who are there to help. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.